the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Great to be with you today. In a few moments, John Zadrozny from America First Legal. You won't believe it. John Zadrozny, who's been on this program before, he's a lawyer, Deputy Director of Investigations at America First Legal, AFLegal, AFLegal.org. Great guy. He was a prosecutor in the office, the prosecutor's office, the district attorney in New York City that is at the center of this uh, indictment of Donald Trump. It's often referred to as the Manhattan DA, the Manhattan district attorney. It's actually the district attorney for New York County, which, of course, Manhattan is the largest uh, borough in in, uh, in New York. I think that's right. Am I saying that right? Anyway. So Zadrozny was there from 2003 to 2007 prosecuting cases. He'll join us and talk about what's going on. America First Legal uh, a few days ago already put in a request saying, um, was there conversations or have there been conversations between the Biden administration and this uh, prosecutor's office? Uh, let's uh, let's find out. And uh, everything is up towards New York today. Jim Stemple, Jim Stemple, the noted author, has written a new book. His new book is out. We'll talk with him in a few moments. The book, I've been plowing my way through it. Uh, the book is called The Enemy Harassed, Washington's New Jersey Campaign of 1777. Fascinating. Washington's ragtag army was basically um, kind of a guerrilla warfare unit for most of 1777 after the victory at uh, at Trenton when they crossed, the, uh, when they crossed uh, over on Christmas Eve. Uh, it's the famous um, from Valley Forge. They went over from Valley Forge and and uh, and and fought in Trenton. And so the Delaware River uh, is what they were crossing, of course, in the snow. It's depicted in all sorts of ways. It was a rough day, but it was a great victory. But anyway, they went on to fight uh, this guerrilla warfare. So, all right, what do you need to know about what's gone on? I, I, I could spend my time, and we'll talk with Zadrozny in a minute, talking about how outrageous this charge is. It's, the, it's a misdemeanor under New York law, to have a filing error about where you put the money you paid someone. If you call it legal expenses when it's actually a payment for uh, staying quiet, you can be uh, rung up with a misdemeanor, and you'd have to prove it. You'd have to prove that this was a violation, but maybe. But it's a misdemeanor. It doesn't need a grand jury indictment. What happened here is the district district attorney, Soros supported in his campaigns, this brag guy, decided to charge instead a felony. And the felony is the requirement is that you do a misdemeanor, in this case, this business uh, transactions, uh, business uh, record keeping problem, but you do it in furtherance of another crime. And then you can charge a felony. The other crime, I think, is campaign finance, federal campaign finance laws. And nobody at the federal level has wanted to charge that. They haven't seen the evidence. In fact, all the different people, and, and including the main witness in this is Michael Cohen, has been caught lying about it. So it's outrageous. It's happening. It's meant to impact the election. It's it's tampering with our election system. It's wrong on every level. We could talk about that for hours. We could talk about how crazy it is that our prosecutors have become these uh, these activists like this in states across the country, your jurisdictions across the country. 
All that would be interesting, but instead I want to point something out to you. Do you realize that we are being distracted and we are not being served by the media or big tech in this case? We're being distracted from major corruption. At this point, it is established that Joe Biden has financial ties directly through his family, the Biden crime family, to the Chinese Communist Party, to the the Ukrainians, all over the world. Hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars in some cases. And we have no conversation about it. At the very most, you have Donald Trump paying someone $140,000 to do something that that may or may not. It may have been to, to stop embarrassment of his family. It may have been to, to stop. I don't know what you could call it. But the scope of the problem of the Biden crime family, it, 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 it eclipses any of this nonsense. And yet we're talking about it 24 hours a day. We're seeing indictments in courts. And the, the 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 Manhattan District Attorney, it's New York County District Attorney. I'm learning from Zadrozny. It is one of the biggest and most used to be one of the most influential prosecutor offices in the country, and they're running around indicting a former president over silly stuff. When in fact we have a we have a not the appearance of impropriety in the White House. We have at minimum we have at minimum the actual proof of relationships between the president Biden's family and the president and his family and the Chinese communists and the Ukrainians and all that that's existing. There could be an excuse. There could be a way that there was a firewall built or something, but think about how we are distracted from the reality of what's going on. And I finish with this. What you need to know is if we're distracted from the truth of the reality of what's real corruption, Think about who is effectively doing that. And we're back. We're back to the narrative machine. Big government feeds the story and big tech and big media back it up. The idea that the media, the serious media and the bar, by the way, the legal community is not saying on mass. You know, Dershowitz is saying it. Turley is saying it. Some of us are saying it. But you would expect the bar associations of of 50 states to condemn what's happening. And they're silent. You would expect real media to be digging into corruption. And they're silent. You the, the Biden crime family. You, you, you are, we are watching major institutions fail because they are part of the narrative machine. It's breathtaking, breathtaking to watch. It's a disaster for the country, and you have to hope that more and more Americans are sick of it. That's what you have to hope. I'm not sure that it will work in the sense that uh, uh, lots of Americans will will talk about, oh, yeah, Trump must have done something. He was indicted. That's how it works. It's like the Russia hoax. People still think the Russia hoax was had something to do with Trump and collusion. It was the opposite. It was Hillary and collusion. We got We got to be worried. All right, we got to take a break. We got to run. We'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Back in a moment. (laughs) 
Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. I'm happy to say that my friend John Zadrozny gave me uh, a, a text this morning and said, hey, do you want to talk? Uh, because I have some perspective on this, both as an attorney. Uh, John Zadrozny is, uh, of course, over. He's a deputy director of investigations at America First Legal. Uh, but also America First Legal has, uh, since they've seen what's going on in the last few weeks, has uh, done what they do, which is filed some uh, uh, FOIA requests and then try to find out what's exactly happening. Be holds people accountable. So, uh, welcome. First of all, welcome, John. Welcome back to the program. How are you? I'm great, Ed. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Well, so first of all, as a, a former prosecutor yourself and a lawyer, obviously, uh, and an observer, what's your sort of um, you know thirty thousand foot observation on this? Well, it, Ed, there's a lot here. I think one one of the few things that hits me, though, is that um, this is one of those cases that in some way should never have been brought. Now, I don't necessarily think that's because Donald Trump is a former president or a former political official. I just think that it's because the reality is when you look at everything they're doing in this case, this is not the sort of case that would ever see the light of day in any normal prosecutor's office. Um, and, the, and the reality is that is made um, even more stark in a time when New York City is awash in murders, rapes, and robberies. Mm-hmm. And you would think the New York County District Attorney's Office would have more to do than pursue a former president for political reasons. I, I just think it's very glaring. The one other thing I think is really interesting, too, having I actually used to work in this office. That I, yeah, I you, were telling me, you were telling me off the air. Now, let me clarify for people. This is actually really good. We're talking with John Zadrozny. Uh, people will refer to this office as the Manhattan District Attorney, which the Manhattan District Attorney, it, it's right because the f- office is physically there, but it's actually the title of this prosecutor's office, the one that did this, is Alvin Bragg is the New York County District Attorney, right? Right, that's correct. Ed. Manhattan is New York County in the five borough uh, right and, and, and surroundings that are the New York, the city of New York. And uh, I used to was I was an ADA, an assistant district attorney in the New York County DA's office between 2003 and 2007. And um, I had I was there during an interesting window. Ed. The reason I bring this up was it's very unusual for a case like this. If it's a really a if it's really a big deal, if it's really the kind of case that needs to be pursued, uh, I saw circumstances when I was at the DA's office where the feds would swoop in and take any good case from the state. And, right. for example, I was there when Martha Stewart got prosecuted. Very few people know she was originally indicted by the New York County DA's office. Huh. Uh, did it with Bernie Madoff. And the feds came in and said, we'll take that because that's a great case. And they grabbed those cases. You'll notice this is not what happened here. And actually, that's kind of why we filed our FOIA request um, earlier this week on this particular issue, because we are concerned that what happened was there was probably a lot of backroom conversations between the Department of Justice and the New York County DA's office where DOJ said, look, we'd really like to throw Donald Trump in jail, but we think it would look bad. Can you guys do it? And we're trying to find out if that's the case or not. And we did Hmm. submit a a Freedom of Information in New York. It's called Freedom of Information. Sorry, it's called Freedom of Information Law or FOIL request. Oh. Um, we've submitted a FOIL request in New York to get that information, and hopefully they'll respond. Um, uh, yeah, again, we're, we're talking with John Zadrozny, Deputy Director of of, uh, of Investigations over at America First Legal. Uh, you can go over aflegal.org is their website. Um, John, pausing for one second, though, uh, to your description, your characterization of of previous, you know, I mean, New York County, Manhattan DA's office, this is one of the biggest 
uh, non-federal prosecuting offices in the country. I mean, right. You've got, you've got an army literally of uh, New York city cops, right? If you're doing your job, you've got uh, lots of real serious um, uh, violent crime to take up. You've got all kinds of things. It's, I guess my point is it's not an unsophisticated place. If this isn't the minor leagues, this is, you know, the, the, I don't know. You want to be the Yankees or the Mets, but you you know, you're, you're in the, you're in the big leagues here. And what I find striking is this this looks it's so uh, contrived that like I want serious lawyers to be like, come on. I mean, you can't do this one. This is too silly. Yeah. Ed. so you're correct. The New York County District Attorney's Office used to be the gold standard nationwide for state level, city level prosecutorial offices. It was very professional. It was crime focused. It was violence focused. Um, and it, it, you know, it's got about five, at least when I was there, it had about 500 attorneys and then, um, additional support staff. So it was a giant office compared to most prosecutors offices around the country. Mm-hmm. And it was really focused on stopping serious crime. And it had a really strong impact on making the city safe for the, you know, the previous 20 years prior to Cy Vance becoming the district attorney before Alvin Bragg. Um, they used to focus on crime and New Yorkers to their credit. You know, we always talk about red states and blue states. If you got a violent criminal, in front of a New York jury, that person was going to prison. They were not wiggling out of that. New Yorkers have a common sense, uh, a level of common sense that was necessity, that was you know part of life in New York. You had to make sure violent people stayed in prison, so you didn't get hurt. And right. you know this is we, we are not talking about a scenario, in other words, where Alvin Bragg has done such a great job of criminal prosecutions and keeping the streets of New York safe that he's just bored and he's looking right. for something else <laughs> to do. It's pretty clear that he and his team are so politically motivated; they are ignoring their primary mission of keeping the people of the city of New York safe, and they've turned to political prosecution. So it used to be the gold standard. I don't even know if it's the bronze standard anymore. It's just a shame, and hopefully New Yorkers are paying attention that they're being ignored. Uh, again, we're talking with John Zadrozny from over at America First Legal, and uh, um, they have uh, filed the New York uh, state law version of a FOIA request to get to see if there's conversations uh, between, uh, again, to, to put a, um, to pause again on this, Conversations between the federal prosecutors, the DOJ and the New York County a district attorney, that that would not be uncommon in any high profile case, correct? It, I'm sorry, Ed, you're saying basically that it would not be uncommon to to say that again. I'm sorry. Well, I, mean, I guess what I'm saying is that in, when you refer to Martha Stewart, the feds, if the feds saw something interesting, they'd come and say, hey, we've got jurisdiction too. we're going to big time you. In other words, they're they're all watching and all competing. Southern District of New York is the is the prosecutor, the U.S. attorney's office there. That's a high profile spot. So they, they it, it, it's it, I guess my point is it's unlikely when they answer and say we've got no uh, um, uh, correspondence or, or, then they're probably lying because there would be some anyway especially in this case in the sense that Alvin Braggs the district attorney has has had to allege that the underlying misdemeanor which is a records problem an assertion about records he's had to assert that it was being used to further another crime which is uh, at least as far as we can tell a federal crime which no one wanted to charge I mean my point is th- th- there's almost no chance that they weren't communicating right I I think there's a zero chance they weren't communicating in some way, even if it was a light level of, right. oh, we understand you're communicating this case, you're uh, yeah. going to prosecute this case. Um, and just that sort of chatter does happen. I will say this, though. Maybe the indication, I mean, there are two ways to look at this, one of which is it's unusual that the feds wouldn't be interested in a strong case um, because they just are. Right, and they right. like high profile cases. And the dirty little secret, Ed, is that the Department of Justice is full of 
very bad prosecutors. And I don't say that lightly. What I mean by that is if you look over the last quarter century, the reality is very few cases of the Department of Justice, you know, across the country writ large, especially the big ones, go to trial. Uh, The reality is the Department of Justice relies on the weight of the federal government's prosecutorial machinery to push plea agreements. And so rarely do you get something that gets to the point of a trial. So I think what they, the feds may have said, look, uh, we just don't want to take this case because we want you guys to do it instead. Mm -hmm. Or the other realistic alternative is the feds don't want any part of this because it's not that good a case. And that was actually my experience with the DA's office where Watching from afar, you could see the Department of Justice would pluck the juiciest cases with the biggest headlines that were the easiest slam dunk type of agreements or convictions. Right. Um, but they would leave the the messier cases, shall we say, the more like difficult roads to a jury verdict uh, to the state and local prosecutors. So you could read that in one of two ways, which is they were conspiring behind the scenes to let the state prosecutors to let Alvin Bragg's office do it. Or they looked at it and said, this is a garbage case. Hey, you right. guys do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Neither. Neither is positive, in my opinion, for either the federal government and uh, or the Alvin Bragg's uh, New York County DA's office. Um, John Zdrozny is our guest, again, an attorney at America First Legal and the a deputy director of investigations there, uh, has practiced law in New York and uh, was a prosecutor in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. That's actually the New York County District Attorney's Office is what the official title is. Um, uh, John, if you're comfortable, uh, would you make an overall observation on the difference between you were there during uh, the legendary uh, District Attorney Morgenthau, who was there for decades and decades and, you know, under Giuliani and, and back in the and how had 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 a re- reputation for I, I think I think he was a Democrat, but had a reputation for being a a sort of uh, law and order um, prosecutor. That's who you worked for or, or worked under. You wouldn't have worked necessarily only for him in the office. But and then we end up with Alvin Bragg, who for for all the characterizations of Soros funded, and I think there's obvious in in my. But the the prosecutor there was, you know, directly uh, she won a primary because she was directly got funding from the Soros organizations. I Bragg did, too, it looks like. But also just the the, the way these offices have changed. I, I, and New York is is a stark example of the of the, the difference in the leaders of the office. Yeah, I think that's 100 percent correct. And I had the, the privilege of working for uh uh, the late legendary Bob Morgenthau. He was there for 30 something years. He followed another Democrat named Frank Hogan, who was there for 30 something years. Yeah, yeah, right. Mr. Mr. Hogan followed Tom Dewey. You may remember Dewey yeah. and Truman. <laughs> yeah. He was the, he was the prosecutor in New York County for 30 years. He was a Republican. And huh. for three quarters of a century, it was one, run by three men who did not let politics interfere with law enforcement. In fact, hmm. um, every day when I walked into the office on the seventh floor, there was a great sign. Um, right in front of the elevators, when you walked out, you could not miss it. It was an old campaign poster from one of those guys, and it said, you can't play politics with people's lives, right? Mm-hmm. And that was basically the motto for the office every day for all of us. And I was never told ever by any of my supervisors, most of whom were all Democrats, I was never told to do this case because it looks good or to do this case because it will help the office. I was told to follow justice. I was always told to make sure the right thing happened. And I mm-hmm. no longer think that's what's going on in that office. In fact, I guarantee you it's not because, again – they are pursuing a political agenda against one man who they hate for whatever reason uh, it, at the expense of the whatever point, whatever million New Yorkers who live in New York County who are being murdered, raped and stabbed on a daily basis because they refuse to address crime. So I, I think the office has fallen very far. I'm sure uh, Mr. Morgenthau is shaking his head upstairs somewhere <laughs> saying, I can't uh, believe this has happened to my office. John, one more practical detail uh, in this kind of indictment. 
Um, we have heard the characterization uh, uh, that or we've heard the descriptions, you know, Trump's got to turn himself in and all that in this kind of a charge. So it is the charge is a felony indictment, right, of the grand jury. Technically, it is. I think that's so what is the normal if you weren't a famous former president, if you were a say you were, a, you know, an accountant in, a, in an accounting firm, this happened. You've now been indicted. What's the normal way this does? Uh, you, you turn yourself in. I mean, there's not I guess all the rest of this is because he's a former president, but what would the normal path be? That's a great question. Ed. So there are two basic formats for how this would unfold. Um, one scenario is not the scenario here. It's where a crime's committed, a person's arrested, they're in detention, and they're indicted at some point after their arrest. Um, uh, or it's the scenario we have here where there's a person at liberty, they are free, they are indicted by a grand jury for crimes, that they alleged crimes, and then they are going to have to come in. Both will result in an arraignment. In other words, you will appear before a judge based on the charges, enter a plea, and then what will happen is there'll be a discussion about pre-trial practice, um, you know, for motions to be submitted, for requests right. for evidence, for battles over the evidence. Uh, in most circumstances, particularly in white-collar circumstances, there's a plea agreement. Um, I mean, there can be, you know, except in those very rare circumstances where there's something that just cannot be resolved or the sentence proposed right. is too high. Um, I suspect here the left wants its kangaroo court trial. So right. I don't know if there's going to be a circumstance where the plea agreement would be enough for these um, political actors that used to be prosecutors. I mean, I'm, I, would, I would be surprised, Ed, honestly, it's not impossible, but I'd be surprised if they allowed a plea agreement. Why would they go through all this just right. to let them get a slap on the wrist in probation? They want to make this guy hurt in public. I don't think they're paying attention, though. And I'd say this, one, one other thing to consider. Be careful what you wish for. I say this to all the lefties who might be listening to this, because what you have done is basically the argument you've used for the last 30 years for not putting many, many criminal Democrat officials in prison has just been wiped away. Like we are you cannot look at the Democrat Party without spotting at least a few felons three deep into the crowd. And yep. you have opened that door and it will never be closed. So I hope it was worth it to put on a show trial with the president, who, by the way, will probably politically benefit from this show trial right, right. Um, because you have you have opened opened the gate, so to speak. And we're well, looking I forward mean, to it. Yeah. The only the only thing on that, John, is I'd say is that um, John Zadrozny is our guest, America First Legal Deputy Director of Investigations there. And uh, you should check them out. It's, it, it, and I say this, you guys, you guys and gals over there, AFlegal.org are fighters. And so if you say, OK, we want to fight, let's fight an awful lot of Republicans say, oh, well, that was really mean. And uh, oh, but I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm now going to be the U.S. attorney and I'll just kind of settle down. And I, you know, I, 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 I really know, uh, you know, the, the uh, Menendez was an awfully good senator on uh, on the war in Iraq. I, I'm not going to bother, you know, getting to exercise. I, that's the, the, that's the problem I see. But anyway, we I, I think you're right about at least taking at the local level. I mean, uh, taking the um, taking the gloves off a bit more, but we'll see if uh, uh, both sides understand that's what's happening. That's the problem. And the only thing, you know, I think you're right. I I think there are a lot of weak Republicans and a lot of weak Republican lawyers. And my only, uh, the only thing I'd say to them is please don't apply next time. The reality is we're looking for people (laughs) who understand that this is a war and it needs to be treated as such. And uh, the only standard you really should ever apply, it's not about throwing political enemies in prison. That is not something we advocate. That's not something I know any conservative would advocate. What you should be doing is keeping an open mind. And when you encounter potential criminal activity, you take it seriously, regardless of the perpetrator, the potential perpetrator. You don't say, oh, this person's a political official. They are now clear of the normal justice for normal people and they get a secondary standard. You have to just look at I think that's what's missing in society. That's what's missing here. That's what seems to be missing, generally speaking, over the last 
20, 30, 40 years that we look at someone who's achieved a certain level of political success and we say they're untouchable. That has to stop. So if people are committing crimes, you go to jail. If you're not committing crimes, you don't go to jail. Yeah, you don't yeah. get an out because you're a politician. Yeah, I think yeah, we need well, to get back to that standard. <laughs> I'll go somebody go get Hillary's emails. But anyway, all right, John Zadrosny. Yeah. John Zadrosny, thank you as always. Thanks for uh, reaching out to uh, to get on the air early. America First Legal. Uh, everybody go check it out. AFlegal.org. Tons of stuff there. He's a deputy uh, uh, director of investigations and an attorney. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ed. Have a great weekend. You too. All right. We'll take a break, everybody. We'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Don't forget, I'll go over and put this all up on social media. Be right back. Ed Martin, Pro-America Report. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report and uh, opportunity. I'm very pleased to uh, to speak uh, to my next guest uh, about his book. Um, it made me smile. I have to tell you, uh, uh, Jim, uh, Jim, it's Jim Stemple, by the way, and we'll get to him in a second. But I smile because it, oh, the opening line uh, is about uh, driving uh, in the New Jersey Turnpike, which I, I didn't. I come from St. Louis for 25 years and I live in northern Virginia now, but my radio show is on in San Diego. But I grew up in New Jersey. So I, I where you described, I, I've been there a thousand times times and all and so i i first smile right away at the beginning so uh that was great and i appreciate it and the book uh is uh from the uh anox uh press permuted press the enemy harassed washington's new jersey campaign of of 1777 absolutely jim fascinating that you found this period of time 10 days that i don't think i'd ever heard about and i'm not an expert on the revolution but i do love washington and i love what happened in that war so it's great first of all i saw the story of why you got this topic but tell the the listener uh jim stemple how'd you end up writing on this uh particular period of time well um yeah it's an interesting story um like you i grew up in new jersey and um i was contacted by roger williams of knox press a few years ago and he was curious to know if if, uh, if I would like to write for him. I had written nine other books at that time, and he liked the way I wrote. And we discussed a number of topics, and he brought up 1777 in New Jersey. And I was kind of curious about that because, like you, I hadn't really heard about too much fighting in 1777 in New Jersey. So I started looking into it fairly deeply, and the more I looked, the more I found I was astounded. Um, for instance, uh, I'm, I'm from Westfield, New Jersey, and I had – grown up and there was some lore around town that a British spy had been hung here or something happened there. But what I found out that most of that, most of that lore was just that lore, but the facts were fantastically more important. I found that 16,000 British troops marched into my hometown in two different divisions, bivouacked there overnight, tore the town to shreds, stole most of the money, uh, wrecked the Presbyterian church, marched <laughs> off with almost all the livestock, and I had never heard anything about it. And that's when I started to realize, oh, my gosh, there's an enormous amount of information here about this period of time that's never really been brought together and focused into a, a, cent- a one uh, a book that can tell the whole story. But what I found out was that the British during this period suffered over 3,300 casualties. Right. Now, that may not sound like that much, but during the, their New York campaign of 1776, 
which is far better well known, yep, they yep. suffered only 1,500 casualties. So I started to look at this and I thought, well, how could that happen? Well, what we found out was that the, there was over 132 engagements fought, probably well over 132 engagements fought during this period of time. But there were smaller engagements. There were no major battles fought. It was fought during the winter time. So the news of a lot of these things never made it anywhere. But the British were fighting almost on a daily basis. They were trying to get out into New Jersey to forge for their animals, to get food for their animals. And the New Jersey militias and the Continentals were attacking them almost daily. So whether they uh, were successful in getting forged or not, they were losing men daily. And the British paid a very heavy price for this seven-month period in New Jersey, a a period that has gone almost forgotten to historians. Um, again, we're talking with Jim Stemple and, and about his, his book. Um, and, uh, when, when you describe, when you go through this, and, and again, you and me then, we could do this, uh, really well, but you're, these towns, Pluckerman, Morristown, uh, you down through, uh, the Bound Brook, um, was, was the state, I mean, it, so it, it, in the characterization uh, that we have, um, Washington was losing everything. Right. They were he was losing all he was losing everything until um, Christmas where he has a surprise. Right. And he wins. Um, did he start winning more or was it still uh, a slog? I mean, it, it, how would you describe the state of the war at that point? Uh, pretty poor. Uh, actually, what was happening? You have to, to understand what was going on with Washington and the dynamic during this period. You have to understand that Congress established the Continental Army through what they called establishments. The first establishment was they simply took over the troops that were up at Boston uh, that had surrounded Boston. And the second establishment was put in through uh, January the 1st, 1776. And those enlistments went out on uh, December the 31st, 1776. Now, Congress had made a third establishment, but Washington during this period was watching his entire army march off and yet the new army wasn't marching in. Right. Because in New Jersey, with very, very few troops, uh, I mean, I, we have, we found a return from, I think it was early March, 1777. He had about 2,200 uh, Continentals, uh, and they were scattered all over New Jersey versus the British Army at the time was concentrated around uh, Brunswick, which is New Brunswick now. They had about 18,000 men. So his entire strategic outlook was to maintain his army until that third uh, establishment arrived, which would really not happen until late spring. And um, summer. So he was in sort of desperate shape. Uh, but the people of New Jersey and the militias of New Jersey and what Continentals he had fought rather wildly. I mean, they turned New Jersey into a hornet's nest for the British. British couldn't go anywhere without suffering considerable casualties. It got to the point where um, William Howe, who was in charge of the British Army at the time, decided he couldn't even march across New Jersey to go to Philadelphia, which was then the capital of the United States because he wanted to uh, lay siege to Philadelphia. He had to load up his entire army onto ships and ship them south down to the Chesapeake Bay from where they marched up upon uh, Philadelphia. That's how bad it was for the British Army in New Jersey. They were losing men uh, daily, and they, they couldn't afford that kind of bloodletting. So it was a it was an enormous success for Washington. His His objectives basically were to keep his army together until the third establishment arrived, and hopefully maybe drive the British out of New Jersey. And he was successful with both. Uh, we, we, we're, we're talking uh, with Jim Stemple about his book, uh, The Enemy Harassed. Um, when you look at, um, uh, the, um, 
by the summer, uh, Washington is is now the hero, right? I mean, I think it's I can't find my notes. I'm sorry. I think you describe him Washington ending up uh, going into Philadelphia. I thought it was towards the end of the book or oh, there, there it is. It's in a uh, postscript. Washington goes to Philadelphia by August and he's a hero now, right? I mean, he's coming in and he's uh, he's the hero. How close was it in those m- months or in the days after um Christmas uh 1776, you know, I know they I know you're saying that the New Jersey uh is the wrong phrase the irregulars and the militia and everybody kept it you know wild and but was it um I mean he could have lost right I mean or or would the loss or would the loss have been that they just he moved as you mentioned how moves around them takes Philadelphia or or something else they weren't trying to beat Washington there they, they but but you know what was the state of he turns out a hero. How close to it was he uh, uh, to being a loser? Real close. I mean, prior to the Trenton uh, victory, um, it, it was, you know, I think he wrote to his brother and said, if if something's not done soon, I, I think that the whole thing's near up. Um, he knew that the, the war was in a dreadful state um, before he crossed the Delaware River on Christmas night and attacked the, the uh, Hessians at Trenton. And that this was simply a desperate move on his part because he knew that his troops were going to be leaving and he had to do something. And that was simply a spectacular victory at the time. I mean, it flipped the war on its head. The British really were taken by surprise. And then three or four days later, he beat them again at Princeton. And they after that, they had to consolidate. They left all their uh, exterior posts and consolidated around uh, New Brunswick. And Washington turned into an overnight hero yeah, at, at that point in time. And all the people considered him a, uh, a fantastic military leader at that point in time. But but in terms of, of the conditions of his troops, of his army and the strategic uh, picture of the war, it wasn't much better. I mean, his his army still wasn't around. His men didn't have shoes or clothes or food. And so it was still a pretty desperate situation. And there were many times during the American Revolution when um the war could have been lost for sure. I mean, it was it was as much a six-year fight to survive, just to survive, as it was to win a victory. I think Washington understood that survival was important. You know, he didn't have to destroy the British in a cataclysmic battle. If he just survived long enough, he could win. And that's ultimately what happened. Uh, the uh, Again, Jim Stemple is the author of The Enemy Harassed, Washington's New Jersey Campaign of 1777. Fascinating time. Um, Jim, as a guy who's written, as you mentioned, I'm looking at, uh, on Amazon. You've got books, uh, the, all these different books on on uh, uh, over the years, um, nine or ten books and and uh, some fiction, um, uh, many nonfiction. Um, does it surprise you as a historian, I guess, and a writer? When you discover a period that was not has not been covered much, I mean, it's one thing when you see, I don't know, is it Brett Baer or somebody on Fox News who's doing like um, a, a books on certain moments in history, like three days in Munich or something. You're like, well, somebody's written on Munich and he's looking at all the, but it doesn't seem like any. I looked at a search as any, as, there hasn't been a lot of writing on this this uh, period. Does it surprise you that there still exists stuff that's uncovered? It, it not only it, it didn't only surprise me; it stunned me. I couldn't believe it. And at, at first, I had to talk to a number of people. I, I, Roger Williams, who was the uh, the owner and the editor at Knox Press, he knows the Revolutionary War quite well. Yeah, and he is a um, a very knowledgeable person, and he has a lot of other people that are very knowledgeable. We all started to talk about it because I thought, 
am I crazy or have I stumbled upon something that no one has ever seen before? Yeah. I stumbled upon something that no one's ever really seen before. I simply think it was because it was winter. There were many small battles that went over a long period of time, no major battles. Um, Trenton was one bookend at one end of this thing. The other bookend was when had Washington did finally have to move towards Philadelphia and defend the capital against the British. So there were very dramatic mm-hmm. events prior to it and right after it. And I just think this, this period of time was forgotten. It's, it's quite a, remarkable, and yet was at a very important time during the Revolution. Very interesting time, especially if you're from New Jersey, but for anybody interested in American history. Well, I, yeah, and uh, and it's just this is just so interesting that it wasn't covered well. All right, well we're we're out of time, and and uh, Jim Stemple, thank you for uh, for uh, coming on with us and writing the book. It's a fascinating one. We'll I'll put it all up on social media, and I hope uh, people will uh, take a look. And when they go up the Jersey Turnpike, they can uh, they can remember all these battles and all. So thanks, Jim. Thank you very much, Ed. All right. Jim Stemple, everybody. I'll, I will put that up on social. It's fascinating to me when something like that, not covered and not written about. Uh, I mean, it, uh, it's a, a little bit, but not like this. So uh, it's, a, it's a really interesting one. We'll take a break, everybody. We'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily commentary continuing the conservative pro-family legacy of Phyllis Schlafly. Now, here's the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. The deep state in Washington, D.C., offered recently to debrief former Trump administration officials about the hot air balloons that seem to have been invading our airspace from China. But Joe Biden was sworn into office as president more than two years ago, so the hot air that appears to be blowing is as much from the deep state in our country as it is from the Far East and China. Apparently, the shadow government in D.C. is no longer subject to the will of the American people, even in selecting our president. The career federal government employees admit now that they concealed information about prior invasions by Chinese spy balloons that are 200 feet tall, by the way, and they weigh more than a ton apiece. And they concealed this information from the Trump administration and Trump when he was president. According to NPR, a similar breach of our airspace by immense balloons from China had occurred at least four other times in the last few years without the public ever knowing about it. This belated revelation by the deep state about these Chinese balloons reinforces the shocking admission in 2021 by the worthless chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, that he would give advance warning to China if the United States planned an attack against China. In the last few months of the Trump presidency, Milley made two unusual phone calls to General Li Zhengchen of the People's Liberation Army of China. Democrats were in control of the House Armed Services Committee then, but did nothing. Republicans called for Milley to resign, but he declined to do so. Milley should be called to testify about whether he, too, knew about any spy balloons from China invading American airspace and whether that information was withheld from elected officials like President Donald Trump. Trump's second secretary of defense, Mark Esper, confirmed that he was never told about it. All Americans can now see that the reach of the deep state runs into the upper echelons of our military, as well as all other portions of government. We need elected officials today more than ever who will fight this cancerous breach of our democratic representation. 
This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report with Ed Martin, president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. And we think it's time to take Washington back from the power brokers. At phyllisschlafly.com, we're organizing a grassroots movement to stand against the deep state bureaucrats who control government. For the latest strategies, go to phyllisschlafly.com. That's phyllisschlafly.com. Thanks for listening, and join us again next time for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. Hey, I'm wrapping things up before we head into the weekend. I, I do uh, want to point you towards, again, things that we missed, things that we missed because we're running around covering this fake indictment of Trump. There was finally on Friday more substantial coverage of the interview done by a juror, a juror on one of the January 6th trials from about a week ago, did a 90-minute interview with C-SPAN's founder, Brian Lamb. And the interview that went on uh, for uh, about, well, I just said over 90 minutes and went into every aspect of the juror's service, her service on this uh, uh, on the uh, uh, jury that convicted some of the uh, January 6th uh, prisoners. And inside it, now Julie Kelly has written about it, and I encourage you to go find Julie Kelly's uh, writing on this. We, we, she's broken out some of the places where it is clearly, I, I mean, it, it's beyond a doubt that it's improper, at least the way she talks about it, the way the juror talks about her role, the way the juror talks about how they considered things, the way the juror talks about another one of the people's roles. It's at least, in my opinion, it's at least unethical, immoral. It sounds terrible demeaning she refers to her other jurors uh, most of them are black she has to convince them because they don't understand she knows better talk about a karen and it's disturbing so there's some coverage go check out julie kelly julie kelly at american greatness all right we got to run thank you to noah dingley our great noah dingley the producer thank you to ryan Hyde, associate producer we will be back next week it's ed martin here on the pro america report talk to you then Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.